Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning and all of our church family online as we continue our worship through the hearing and the receiving of God's word this morning. Is it possible to multitask? Shall we give it a try? You pad your head and rub your tummy at the same time? So those of you who are good at it, switch your hands. Can you do it the other way? I think the ability to multitask really depends on the task. If you're driving a race car in the Daytona 500 and trying to do your taxes at the same time, it's really impossible and, nor, and it's not a good idea. But what about holding the baby and cooking breakfast? What about shredding documents and ordering a pizza? I think there's gotta be some measure of multitasking possible or else how could you possibly be a parent? <laughs> kids, kids don't exactly, kids don't exactly get a, a number and wait in line at the DMV for you to call on them. They need your help and they need it now when they want it. So my own personal multitasking has been driving in the car and trying to keep my toddler awake so that I don't have them fall asleep, miss nap time and get in trouble at home. And so that turns into being a safe driver while rolling the window up and down several times, <laughs> turning music on really loud and occasionally smacking his seat. Just don't you do it, bud. Don't you do it, bud. I've even shaking it. Don't, don't you do it. I think some measure of multitasking is possible. I think it really depends on the task. I think there's some measure. How about this question? Have you ever thought about this? Can God multitask? Can God uphold the universe and at the same time rest? Can God save Israel and at the same place in the same time judge Egypt? Yeah, absolutely. God can do it. It's an amazing yes. And God can do so much more than this. Today, we're going to study 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to see two different groups of people with two different destinations and God acting in two different ways with them. And this will be significant because we really want to understand these groups and make sure that we choose accordingly. Today, as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2, our theological message comes right out of verse 9. He gives us the point right to us. We don't even have to search hard for it. He says this, the Lord knows how to rescue and he knows how to judge at the same time. He knows how to rescue and judge at the same time. He knows how to rescue the godly and at the same time judge the ungodly. And in this case, this will be false teachers. If you have your Bible, turn with me, please, to 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We pick up together and Peter writes, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now I have to pause you there. I looked in the Greek and it doesn't say secretly. I'm not sure where the interpreters got that. Literally it says opinions of destruction. So that's what we're gonna roll with this morning. This is not something they are secretly doing. It is something more openly and they are destructive opinions, what we might call destructive heresies or false beliefs even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, 
the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. God is the great shepherd of his people, amen? amen? And at the same time, while we are still here on this earth, there will be wolves that will come into the church. And specifically, these wolves will be false teachers. They will be dressed in sheep's clothing. They will look like they're a part of the church, but really they are not. So how do we go about recognizing these false teachers? Is it by the way they dress? Is it by the way they smile? Is it by their haircuts? How do we recognize false teachers? In the first three verses, Peter gives us two general ways in which we can recognize them. The first one here is their doctrine. Doctrine is another word for teaching or the things they believe. And they are bringing in what kind of doctrine? Destructive opinions that are not aligned with scripture. And as we look at next week, we'll give you the heads up. They believe it seems that they deny the second coming of Christ as well as judgment day. Why is it so bad to deny these two things? Because they are denying the very one who will save them on that judgment day. Christ has a helicopter of salvation, get in and I'll save you. And they're leading them away from that rescue helicopter and back into the tsunami, which is going to take them out similar to the flood all the way back in Genesis. In order to spot false teaching, the church has to remain in the doctrines of God. To remain in the doctrines of God, you have to first what? You have to know them and you have to believe in them. Let's play a game called false doctrine or not. I'll say a statement and you can in your mind wrestle with it. Is this true or is this false? Ready? Great. God is Jesus. True or false? False. Jesus is God to be sure, but if you flip it around and say God is, you must include the Father and the Holy Spirit. You see how subtle that was? I know, tricky. I was being tricky on purpose. I know none of you meant it that way, but this is just part of growing in doctrine and being careful, especially with the cults, because they're very good at twisting things just a little bit. How about this statement? The Holy Spirit is an impersonal force of God. The Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. This is a false statement. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal. He's very personal. He has his own mind, a will, emotions. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit speaks very much the attributes of a person or personality. This is actually a belief of the Watchtower Society, also known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe he's kind of like the force from Star Wars. Jesus is God on the inside, man on the outside. So you think about an M&M and it's all chocolate and then it's got a shell. Is, is this true? Is Jesus all God on the inside, but then he has the shell of a man on the outside? This is false doctrine. He's fully God, fully man. The two natures joined together in the one person of Jesus. If he's not fully human, he's not fully like you. Therefore, he can't fully do what? Represent you and sacrifice for your sin on the cross. He must be fully human. And Hebrews 2 tells us he became like us in every way. How about this one? Jesus set aside his divinity when he came to the earth and he was only man on the earth. And then when he rose from the dead, he became God again. Is that true or false? 
That's false. He did not set aside his divinity. He set aside his glory, the glory he had with the father, but it was restored again when he raised from the dead. God helps those who help themselves. It's really hard to find a verse that says that. God helps those who can't help themselves. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be saved. I say that's a false statement, generally speaking, overall. How about this one? Christians can date and marry non-believers. It's false. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is speaking to a widow or about a widow. She's lost her husband. He says she's free to remarry. But what are the boundaries of that remarriage? He must be in the Lord. And so we take that as a principle that God desires believers to marry other believers. I'll give you one more. Abortions are okay with God under 12 weeks. Yes, that is very false. It's very false. At conception, the egg and the sperm, we have gametogenesis going on. It has its own DNA, its own person. It is separate. It is very much a person in the image of God at conception. And to take that life is to, to murder someone in the image of God, period. Doctrine is one of the best ways to spot a false teacher. And growing in doctrine will help you to spot false doctrine as well as well. Now, I'm not a shoe guy, but I got interested in this video of someone trying to sell shoes to someone else. Don't ask me why, I just watched it. And he was trying to sell really cool Michael Jordans for a good price. And the guy takes the box, he looks at the box, he takes the shoe out, he does this wipey thing on the bottom of the shoe. You know how basketball players always do this? I've never understood that, but I'm not a basketball player. I was pretty sure he was going to smell the shoe and maybe even take his tongue and like do something to it, but he didn't, thank God. And he asked the guy, where'd you get this? And he explains, I got it from here. And he's like, be pretty much, sorry to burst your bubble, these are fake. The guy who sold them to you, they're not real. How did he know that? He knew Michael Jordan's shoes, the authentic ones, so in and out that he could tell false ones. And you've heard this analogy with money. You study real money, you know it so well, you can spot a fake, especially if it's monopoly money. <laughs> a second way in which you can tell a false teacher, not just doctrine, but also their behavior. And there are two ways in which he points out here, sexual immorality and that they are cleverly greedy. We'll start with the first one. They model a life of sexual freedom anywhere, anytime, any place. But because of this, what does Peter tell us? The way of truth was blasphemed. So by claiming to be a Christian or a Christian teacher, and then to live a life of sexual immorality, you were actually blaspheming God's truth. You were causing it to be spoken of as if it's evil. It's, it's something like this. You're a Christian and you live like that? Well, God must not be true then. You're a Christian and you act this way? Your God must be false then. And God's truth is spoken evil of because of their behavior. Tuesday, on the way to work, I was listening to getting my news in the morning and I heard about a pastor who was pulled over for a specific reason. And then they found meth in his car, two different forms on the East coast. It sounded like, I want to be careful because I don't want to gossip, but it sounds like he was doing something else with that possibly. Anyway, busted for meth. What's the world going to think about God when they hear that? Yeah. Christianity's a joke, bunch of whatever. And look at doing meth, just like the rest of the world. Behavior matters. Our behavior matters. And the world takes notice. Are we perfect? By no means, but hopefully we reflect the Lord in such a way that we're helping to point them to the one who is perfect and the one who does save. 
Second thing here was greed. These guys, these false teachers here are motivated by greed. They want it for themselves. They will say whatever they need to say to get you to get on board, to buy in so they can get what they want. Such selfishness is not truly shepherding God's people. It's only using sheep for their own personal gain. Why are these two things, these two behaviors so bad? Because it denigrates, it blasphemes God's truth and it manipulates God's sheep. You wanna upset God? Blaspheme his truth, manipulate his sheep. He will not be pleased with those things. The wolves have not been removed from the earth yet. And they will come into the church. They will act like the church. They will even seek to lead the church. But whom are they doing it for? For themselves. They are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They do not have the heart of a sheep. They do not hear the voice of the great shepherd. And here's the point in verse three. Here's the point. This is where Peter is clear. Their condemnation is coming. Destruction is awaiting them. That's the point. That's the point you're going to see hammered through every section in which we stop and exposit scripture here this morning. And if destruction is coming for them, what ought we to do as a church? Get away from them. We need to boot them out. You don't get to be here teaching things like that. And so we see Peter has a great heart of a shepherd. He's caring for the sheep. Chapter one, he grounds them in the gospel. The first four verses, God has given you everything for life and godliness, everything for salvation and to reflect him by his power and the calling in which he has done. The rest of chapter one, he is giving them how to grow in the image of Jesus. We talked about it the last two weeks, those seven attributes And those are just a foundation of much more that we could do. And now he begins to reveal the characteristics of these false teachers. And it's not in their personalities. It's not in their appearance. Where is it? In their doctrine. And it's in their behavior. Being charismatic. Let me define that. Being publicly winsome or charming or funny doesn't necessarily make you or make someone a good and sound teacher. Being a good storyteller does not make someone necessarily a good and sound teacher. Where is it? It's in their content of their teaching and it's in their behavior that goes along with it. I think the church overall, I'm speaking the church overall universally would do well to remember this. How they say it is not as important as what they say. What they look like is not as important as how they are living. Man looks at where? The outward appearance and where does God look? Would you rather have plumber A or plumber B? Plumber A is good looking, funny, tells great stories, really interesting, smells terrific. Gets underneath your house, fixes it sorta, but actually makes it worse and breaks a pipe. Or would you rather have plumber B? Nothing really exciting about them. Didn't really say much, borderline rude. Maybe they're so quiet. Gets under your house, fixes it. Your house is ready to go. Water's working again. Who would you rather have? You would rather have B. Same thing with teachers. I will take someone who's not the most exciting, not the most fun, not on the, mo- not on the cover of GQ magazine, <laughs> not writing books, but they know the word. They love God and they're expounding it for God's sheep. It's difficult to know every false teaching 
out there. It's difficult to know all the forms of it, but it is possible for us to grow where? In true doctrine and in true teaching. As a church, we must be foundational in doctrine of the Bible. We must be doctrinal loving. We must be doctrinal growing. When the first believers gathered together, what did they dedicate? What did they devote themselves to? Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. What was the first one on that list? Apostles' teaching. God has given his truth to his apostles, and the Spirit has carried them to pass it on to the church for then and for now and until Christ comes back. What do we want to dedicate ourselves to? The truth of God as he has revealed it to us which is why we teach the word on Sunday morning, which is why our call to worship comes from scripture, which is why our prayer time comes out of scripture. Everything we're trying to do is based on what God has revealed and called us to. Your Bible studies need to have good and solid doctrine. Your devotionals need to be based on good and solid doctrine. Doctrine is not dry. It's not boring. Don't ever say that to me. (laughs) You could say it. I'll love you in it. (laughs) Doctrine is key to knowing God, loving God, obeying God, living the way he desires us to live. Think about it. Everything that you believe is based on your doctrinal understanding of scripture in some way. When you pray, the way you pray is because of your understanding of the doctrine of prayer. How long you pray, where you pray, what you say, how you end your prayer, all of that is because you have some kind of biblical understanding that is guiding you in that. Wouldn't we want to know what scripture actually says about it so we can better align ourselves with it? The way that you respond to your boss is your understanding of the doctrine of secular authority and how the church relates to that secular authority. The way you treat your spouse, your understanding of the doctrine of marriage and your biblical role within that marriage the way that you raise your children. It is your theology or your doctrine of parenting. Does God give us keys? Does he give us truth on how we should think and do that? Absolutely. And that's part of why we have our parenting classes and trying to grow in these areas. Simply, it's all doctrine. Doctrine's not dry or boring. It's a part of everything that you think and do. And it's the foundation for how you live. Wolves will exist in the church and outside the church, but doctrine keeps us grounded and doctrine keeps us growing. The end of these false teachers, where they are headed is destruction. And to show that this destruction is true and the church should realize this, Peter is now going to quote extensively from the Old Testament. But he also shows how God is mighty to multitask, not just to judge, but also saving at the same time time and the church would do well to know this so she can remember which group to remain a part of. Turn with me now to verse four. I want to show you something real quick structurally so you have an idea because it's easy to get lost in this. Verse four, he says, for if, so we have an if statement. Verse nine, it says, then, for if these things are true and they are, then this must be true. And we take this home with us. Verse four, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The first if, 
This is one of those where we could get incredibly bogged down here. And I want to be very careful not to bog you down. When did God judge these angels? It's tough to know. Could it be before Adam and Eve were even made and, and they sinned and then the devil come down and wanted to tempt them? Possibly. Could this be Peter's understanding of Genesis 6? The angels apparently came down and impregnated the women and then giants were made. It's very possible. A lot of people believe that. I struggle to believe that one still. It's very possible. So I don't know exactly, but God cast them into hell. And this is a different word for hell in the Greek. It's the word Tartarus. So it seems to be not the final hell in which we think of. This is some kind of spiritual Greek understanding, Peter communicating to his people uh, of a judgment holding that God is doing upon these angels. Are they chained up permanently? Or is this something that is withholding them and they can only go so far and do so much? You having fun yet? This is biblical studies. There's so many questions here. I'm introducing you a little bit, but I don't want you to get bogged down because the big point, we shouldn't lose it. Verse five, for if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is gonna to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If all of these things, then verse nine, the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Three judgments, two rescues. What does all of this showcase? The Lord knows how to rescue and he knows how to judge at the same time. Who did God judge? Celestial angels. He judged the entire world with a flood and he judged entire cities. This is not just historical reality as one commentary points out. These are promises of what God will do to the ungodly. Not just what happened, but what happened that points forward to what God will do to those who walk in the same steps as these people. In other words, false teachers will not escape judgment. The church can be assured that although wolves exist, God will punish them and he will condemn them for rejecting him and his truth. Now God judged, but he also rescued. Although outnumbered, although outpowered, Noah and Lot were saved. They both desired righteousness. It says that Noah was a herald, a preacher of righteousness. We don't have an account of Noah doing this. So where does this come from exactly? It's hard to know. Maybe by Noah making the ark, it was a way of proclaiming righteousness because he's being set apart. Maybe he actually did proclaim, you guys are wrong, I need to stop and get on the boat. I don't know. The Genesis doesn't give us that much information, but somehow Peter was given this insight. Lot, Lot was tormented by the immorality of his day. I like how one commentator put it. You can tell you have a righteous heart when the ungodly things around you bother you. You can tell God has worked some righteousness in your heart when you look around and go, that's disgusting. I hate that. Or even in your own history and your past, you go, I hate the fact I did those things. I don't ever want to do those things again. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Now, Lot and Noah, 
they had their sins. If you dig in, you'll find some pretty gnarly and bad stuff that they did. However, they seem to look to God for salvation. And because of God's favor in rescuing them and them looking to God, God saved them. Verse nine is the main point. The Lord knows how to judge. He knows how to rescue. Therefore, we do not follow these false teachers because we know where they are headed. And God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever in the sense I'm going to use that now and that he will judge in the future just like he has in the past. The day of the Lord is real. The day of the Lord is a time where he will come and he will set all things straight. Evil will be put into its place forever in hell. God will judge those sins. But the day of the Lord also is a day of rescue where God will rescue us fully and finally from this fallen world, these fallen bodies. And he's already done that by proclaiming we're forgiven and by giving us a deposit of the Holy Spirit. So the day of the Lord is an awesome day, depending on which side you're on. And I encourage you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, that day will come and you will be judged for your sins. How do I escape that? How do I become saved from those sins? By turning and bowing your knee to Jesus, confessing him as Lord and Savior, Savior of your sins, and now the resurrected Lord of your life. And when you do, God will rescue you now and in the future. History is gone, but history still speaks. And what does it say? It tells us as the church to trust the Lord. He will judge and he will save. That day is coming. Therefore, we don't join this group and we live life knowing that day is coming and that he will rescue us. Are these false teachers really that bad? Is it really that bad? Peter actually is going to pick up from verse three and tell you how bad they really are. It gets worse. Verse 10, halfway through the verse, he says, bold and willful. It's this idea of being boldly arrogant. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is speaking of other angels. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. To revel is to seek pleasure. They are blots and blemishes. You think about God calling us to be blameless. Here's the opposite of that. Blots, blemishes, just nasty marks of sin all over them in the way they're living. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Peter pauses, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. We've been introduced to the idea of recognizing false teachers. And what two ways did we talk about? Doctrine and their behavior, but now we hear the extent of their behavior. It runs even deeper. It can be summarized as this, sex, money, power. Put all this into sex, 
money, power, sex, even they're after it all the time. They have eyes, it says, full of adultery. And actually the Greek word is they have eyes full of an adulteress. To have the eyes full of an adulteress means that everyone now is a potential partner. Everyone they see and they meet are being sized up to, hey, could this be someone that I could engage in this activity with? They're ruled by their own lust. Sex, however, we know is a gift from God to be used where? In the context of marriage between a man and a woman, that's it. That's where God put it. God demands the marriage bed to be pure. And he says that he will judge the sexually immoral. Hebrews chapter 13, we have got to take it seriously. And I can't help but think this is a big sin that many people struggle with. If you are struggling with this as a Christian, I know it's really easy to say, you need to stop it. You need to get out of it, get the help that you need, the accountability you need, whatever it looks like and get away. Read Hebrews 13. I think it's verse two. God will judge the sexually immoral. Thank God for Christ forgiving us as we become, amen? But as Christians, we can't live this way. It denigrates God's truth. The world goes, you're some Jesus you have, you're just like the rest of us. But you have been given power by the grace of God to say no. Remember, those attributes we talked about, you have been given self-control. You are stronger than you realize to do the right thing. Money, these guys are greedy for money, not more salvations, not seeing people set free. They're not hungry for God's glory. They're hungry for money. Who is their God? Money is their God. Jesus makes it very clear. You cannot serve both God and money. One will be your God over the other. Is money bad? No, it has a purpose. It is a gift. It is good, but it's not your God and it can't rule or run your life. God is the one who does that. Lastly, power. These guys are boldly arrogant. They speak and blaspheme about things they don't even understand. And I think about this, when teachers speak boldly and with great confidence, are people attracted to that? Oh, we are. If you're bold and you're confident, you got the power tie with the power stare and the power finger and right, you're doing that. We just love, this guy must really know what he's saying. We all desire to feel a measure of security, true? And confident teachers help us feel that way. But there is a fine line between confidence and arrogance, between confidence and false boldness. We desire a teacher who's confident, but they must be humble in that confidence. They must be able to say when they don't know something. As a teacher, it's hard, but I would much rather have me or any other teacher say, I don't know, versus try to force something that makes it all the worse. Because you have the power as a teacher to impact what people think. What they think impacts how they feel, how they live, how they interact with people. It's a huge responsibility. There's a show called Shark Tank. And there's a group of investors and someone comes and brings their business idea or proposal and tries to get them to invest money to make the business grow. One thing I really love about those sharks is that they will stop in the midst of all their success, their money, their knowledge and say, you know what? I love your idea. I don't really know this field though. So-and-so, my colleague over here, they'd be a much better partner for you. And for that reason, I'm out. I'm like, that's fantastic could really harm someone, get into something you don't know very well. 
And I think that's so great. Same thing as teachers. We're able to say, you know what? I don't know that. I'll help you find it or I'll pass you off to so-and-so or Pastor Chuck or someone else because they know that area better. The point is that not we're glorified as teachers, but that God is glorified and the sheep are being fed and cared for. That's why God has given teachers. What's the point here? We don't want to lose track of the point. The point is this. These false teachers are accursed. He stops right in the middle. He says, accursed children, they are under judgment. They're walking towards it. Therefore, as a church, what do we do? Get out of here. We want nothing to do with the false teaching in which you are bringing. And their behavior is not really hard to see. Sex, money, power. Looks just like the world. John described it, First John. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Verse 17. We end on this last section here. Would you believe he has more to say about these false teachers? They are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. These are pictures of someone who lacks substance. They look like a spring, but there's no water. Looks like a cloud with rain coming down. There ain't no rain coming. The wind's going to blow it on by. There's no substance. This is something that bothers me so much. To have all the charismatic personality, storytelling ability in the world, but to have no substance, it's empty. There needs to be substance. There needs to be truth. Without truth, you won't be set free. He says, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. These false teachers are promising something they don't even have. They're promising freedom. Follow us and you'll truly know freedom and the joy of life. And they're throwing out this fishing hook. And on the end of the hook is sexual immorality. Come on, join the party. This is great. This will be so much fun. In reality, Satan is the one holding them as the line and dangling them with their false teaching. They don't even realize it. They're not free. They're completely enslaved to their lustful passions and desires. And this is part of the good news. God not only forgives your sin, he sets you free from the power of sin. So that old lifestyle, you don't have to live that way anymore. You can be free from that. You can be free from those thoughts. You can be, I'm preaching to myself, free from that guilt. You can be free from all the things that change you up and bogged you down. Isn't that amazing? Sean, I'm not, not there yet. One step, one foot in front of the other, and we'll get there by God's grace. We're all a work in progress. They are dangling this in this section to those who are just becoming believers, just escaping corruption. We would do well to be mindful of new believers. New believers are easier to entice, to trick, to lie, to manipulate. And we want to make sure that they are protected as they come into our churches. So not right now, but as you go forth, coming here Sunday mornings in fellowship, look around, notice those who are newer or coming to faith, who haven't been in the faith as long as you, and let's pray for them, protect them, make sure that the devil never gets close to them in that way. We give them the substance of the truth that they can stand on their own two feet. He continues here in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, 
through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if they do this and then they are entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. That's gross. And the sow, that is the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire or the mud. This brings up a point. Can you lose your salvation? It looks according to Peter's language here that they came in, they believed, they were born again, and then they walked away and now they're worse off than they were at the beginning because they've rejected the truth. Did they lose their salvation? I, I can see how somebody gets to that point. I can see how a straight reading of that text very much can teach that. I can see that. But I think when you take into account the rest of scripture and possibly the language in which Peter is using here, I don't think you can lose your salvation. I don't think the, these people were ever saved in the first place. Here's why. They're like a pig, not being mean to call them a pig, but you're like a pig in the sense where you took a bath and you went right back to the mud. You were never changed. There was never transformation. You were always a pig. They didn't transform into something else. But in Christ, you're born again. You are a new creation. There's something new, something living inside you that wasn't there before. They didn't have that. I don't see that. John talks about it like this in 1 John. They went out from us because they were never really a part of us. Give enough time, you'll see the difference. Jesus told a parable of the sower. And he talks about how seed is sown on different soils. The seed is the word of God. The word of God comes here and it hits the ground, goes nowhere. The bird takes it away. Another one, it comes, something shoots up real quick and then it dies down the next day. Another one grows and grows a little bit and then it's choked out by the worries of the world. And the last one grows, it bears fruit and it keeps bearing fruit 30, 60, 90 fold. When you go into someone's backyard, you can tell the difference between a weed and the grass. But the weed looks like grass. It looks like one of the plants. It can even grow little flowers out of it. They can grow pretty big, especially after the January rains that we had. But they're not really plants like that. They're still weeds. And it's the same thing here with these false teachers. The rain came down. It affected them in some way, but they never were really born again, in my opinion, as I look at this. So when we look at people's lives over time, that will be a key indicator. Did they really receive Christ in the first place? We have to be careful with, they walk down to an altar call and they're always saved no matter what. Well, if they go and they live a horrible life for the next five years and there's no sign of real true transformation or faith, we have to sincerely question that day. Were they really saved? I hate to say that but I want to say it so we can be more real about people's lives and go, you know what? You're not living it. I don't see it at all. Therefore, we need to pray for you. I want to share gospel with you. I want to take it more seriously. I'd rather have us lean that way than just, oh, you'll be fine no matter what. No, we want to come in there and we want to encourage them to truly walk with Christ and to truly know him. Amen. Amen. We've learned a lot today about false teachers. I decided to put it all in one sermon instead of to break it up. 
because talking about false teachers probably isn't that exciting where you'd want to do it a bunch of times in a row, maybe. So we put it all together. What do we learn? False teachers will be around. They will come in the church. Their doctrine is not scriptural. Their behavior is sex, money, power. That is their aim. That is what drives them. And they will be judged. Therefore, we want nothing to do with that. What are some false teachings or groups to be aware of? This is worthy of a whole sermon series or a bunch of classes. We have the cults for sure. This is one of the big ones. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian science. They teach a distorted view of Jesus, of God, of salvation, and they have a different Bible. You put all that together, they fit this mold, which is heartbreaking because they can be very nice people. They can do some very nice things. But without grace, being saved by grace through faith, through Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man in the Trinity and understanding these truths, they are going to miss it. And so at the very least, we pray for them. Prosperity gospel, word of faith. There's a lot of things to be aware of, but here's where I want to focus you in on. Where are you most susceptible to false teaching? Where are you most susceptible to being duped? Is it charismatic teachers? I'm just a sucker for a guy with a big smile and winsome and funny and tells good stories. And I just, it just, I just love it. Are, are, are you susceptible to that? Are you susceptible to the law of perfection? Are you susceptible to sexual immorality or other old behaviors that were a part of your old lifestyle? Whatever it is you are susceptible, we want to find the gospel in that area, rest in the gospel and grow from it. I'll give you an example. The law of perfection. Let's say you struggle with that. You remember, I'm saved not by works, but by what? Grace. Jesus saves me. I do nothing to earn salvation. I cannot forgive my own sins. It's him. Sanctification now. Who's growing you? The Lord is. It's his grace that grows you. Paul talks about this in Galatians. We are saved, but we don't go back to the law now to try to live. No, we are now living in the law of Christ by the power of the spirit. He enables us to do these things and to live this way. He's the one working inside of us. Remember that at the airport analogy where the, the moving sidewalk, he's already moving the sidewalk in our life. We simply get on it and we're walking and we're living out what he's already equipped us to do. He's the one who works in you to work and to will according to his good pleasure. And we go, no, I'm not going to be susceptible to this. To teachers who are like, you better do this. You better get this. You better get this. And you're like, oh, I better do all this or else I'm going to die and go to hell. No, stop. Get in the gospel. Stand there. Rest there. That's an example of that. Wherever you feel most susceptible, get the gospel in your heart and grow. Ask God to grow it in you. Amen. Let's pray and let's ask for God's grace in the areas in which we struggle. Father, we thank you for the great warnings you've given us. False teaching is very serious. Forgive us for any times where we've been a part of or thinking things that displease you. Help us, shape us. And Lord, for the areas that we are susceptible to being tricked or manipulated, I pray that you would put gospel strength in our hearts, in our minds. You would renew our minds so we could be protected from these things. Thank you, God, for your, your salvation by grace, your sanctification by grace, and one day your glorification by that same grace. We trust you. We praise you. Be glorified now in this time. Amen.